in the midst of his teaching, in the thrum of this packed synagogue, Jesus looks beyond the first row of eager pupils. He looks past the second row and the third, all these people looking up at him with wide eyes, leaning in to take each word from him. Out beyond them, he sees her. He drops his teaching aside and calls out. She cannot see him, but she hears his words, inviting her close. In an instant, somehow, he sets her free. Jesus' work for liberation flies in the face of the powers that be. His actions are without question unacceptable. Healing people is work. That's the stance of the religious leaders of his day. It does not belong on the Sabbath. They are to do no work, to set the day entirely aside for rest, for study, for praising God. Which, on the whole, is wonderful. Jesus agrees Except, except what happens when the order we have created, the system that keeps some of us comfortable and in power, is also responsible for keeping some of us down. The religious leaders seem open to this woman being healed any other day of the week. And yet, for 18 years, it hasn't happened. Is it because she only comes on the Sabbath? Is it because they somehow are not capable of pulling off this healing? Or or what? But, But she's here now. Whatever the reason, it has been way, way too long. We're told that this woman has been bound for all these years, not by osteoporosis or by an accident, but because she has been bound by a spirit, or by Satan, or by the oppressive evil that pervades. However you want to name it, she has been crushed by the oppression that defines her world. And Jesus insists that such oppression must be dismantled, even, especially, on the Sabbath. Jesus calls the question on the system. Are we doing this simply because it's considered proper order of things? At whose expense does that order exist? Who receives the payout of its benefits? These questions stand for us to ask of our church, of our communities, of the places we study and work. Like 
many of you, I suspect, I've been reading the essays in the 1619 Project in the New York Times, examining the history and the legacy of slavery in the United States. Now 400 years since that first ship carrying enslaved Africans landed in the Virginia colony. I've been examining my own communities, beginning with the college that has defined my life and that of my family for a long time. My husband, Jesse, and I met at Dartmouth College, way up in the woods of New Hampshire. My parents met at Dartmouth College, way up in the woods of New Hampshire. My mom's father and his brothers studied there, and their father and his brothers studied there, and their father, and on back. It's a point of pride and of gratitude, because this place has, by and large, been really good for us. And, and, I have to stop right there. It's complicated, more so than I have ever really wanted to acknowledge. This week, I dug deeper. Being rooted in the north, way up in the case of Dartmouth, is often used as a shallow excuse for escaping responsibility for our country's awful past. And yet, as I searched further, I learned that Eliezer Wheelock, the celebrated founder of Dartmouth, for whom so many things are named, he brought eight enslaved black people with him to New Hampshire when he began the school 250 years ago. I learned that their names were Brister, Exeter, Chloe, Caesar, Lavinia, Archelaus, Peggy, and an enslaved child whose name was not recorded. Now, I suspect that these were not their actual names, their given names, but those that Wheelock dubbed them with. But they're all we have. In those early days, I read, there were more slaves than faculty, administrators, or active trustees. In fact, there were arguably as many enslaved black people at Dartmouth as there were students in the college course. This has not been one of my family's stories. We talk about the bookstore that my great-great-grandfather started with his brother down on Main Street. We talk of how my mom started just two years after the school went co-ed. Sometimes we'll even talk of the tiny plot in the college cemetery where my ancestors are buried among them a child, but his name is on the headstone. We don't talk of the enslaved child, the one whose name has been lost to history 
who was forced to move there at the founding of the school. As I read this history, my shame burned hot. I recognized in a new way the degree to which I am complicit with this evil in my privilege and the privilege of my family. I saw how much my free ride was not free at all, but came on the backs of others. It's the shame that grabs my attention. What do we do with it? If we're paying attention, or, or even if we're just spending time with other people who are paying attention, that burn comes. I imagine it's similar to what the religious leaders felt, these people of faith who thought they were just doing their best, just trying to guide the community as they'd been schooled to do. The English we hear in our translation, it, it flattens their experience when we hear that the leader is indignant. The Greek carries more a sense of being deeply pained, almost fragile, vexed in the realization that what has transpired is so far off from God's vision for what could be. The shame is palpable, deep-seated, all-encompassing. What then do we do with it? How will we let this shame change us and change how we live? I think, I think before anything, the call is to listen to stop and to listen to the one speaking the uncomfortable truth. Jesus starts by freeing the woman, the one in the most pressing need, but he doesn't stop there. He pivots to this very different strategy of liberation, but he's reaching out for the religious leaders. He's giving them the truth that it might set them free as well. So what if that burning pain in our stomach, the one that hits deep and then rises up when we see how far we've gone off course, what if that's a good thing? What if it's useful? What if that shame is actually bringing life if we will only engage it. Jesus sounds harsh in his rebuke, but I believe he's speaking this truth to the religious leaders out of love and concern. Yes, yes, they are the ones benefiting from the system. And still, their misuse of it dis disfigures them. Jesus holds up this mirror to them as a gift as an invitation, even if it is a terribly uncomfortable one to receive. The system of our world is not working, friends. The legacy that 
reaches 400 years back to that first ship's landing is alive and well. And it is profiting the oppressor and deforming us all. If our collective order isn't freeing everyone from the evil that binds, if the system benefits some while punishing others, then we have missed the point. I don't know what the way forward is, not fully. I don't know what I will do with this information that is new to me, this truth about the legacy that has so benefited my family while so thoroughly violating the lives of others. What responsibility will I take on to make reparations? What will I give of myself, of my abundance, of my privilege to work for change? What will we do together? Listen. There are people already calling the question. Can we follow the work of these bold historians digging into the sinful, broken past of our country and grappling with the myriad ways the legacy of slavery still plays out today? And white folk, can we do it even if it means staring down our own shame? Can we follow Jesus collectively in questioning the very system itself? What comes then, what follows, is the gift of life that he sanctifies, that he offers in and of himself, if we will but partake. The invitation behind it all is liberation, that each of us, that all of us might be free.